I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. I am so excited to share that my book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, comes out this spring. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive approach to yoga. It is available for purchase on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Welcome back, everyone. Well, I try not to play favorites, but I have to tell you, this is one of my favorite episodes and favorite conversations that I've had in a while. It's a very special conversation with Dr. Jamie Marich. She wrote Transforming Trauma with Jiu-Jitsu, which my husband came across through his love of Jiu-Jitsu. And when I read it, I said, oh my goodness, I have to have her on. In this episode, we talk about so many things. We cover so much ground, of course, about jujitsu and why this practice, this specific martial art can really help move trauma, how it's related to the ways yoga moves trauma and where it differs, the ways that we dream of teachers of jujitsu, of yoga, and of other practices getting trained in trauma sensitivity and what that means, how to make your class safer. We talk about safe exposure to uncomfortable feelings. We talk about breath work and choice. And then we get into disassociation and her latest book and all about disassociation, different kinds of disassociation And in the end, a brief discussion of EMDR, which I promised to go into deeper with, with another guest. So a lot of ground covered here. Jamie describes herself as a facilitator of transformative experiences. She's a clinical trauma specialist, expressive artist, writer, yogini, performer, short filmmaker, Reiki master, TEDx speaker, and recovery advocate. She unites all of these elements in her mission to inspire healing in others. She began her career as a humanitarian aid worker in Bosnia, Herzegovina from 2000 to 2003, primarily teaching English and music while freelancing with other projects. Jamie travels internationally teaching on topics related to trauma, EMDR therapy, expressive arts, mindfulness, and yoga while maintaining a private practice and online education operations in her home base of Northeast Ohio. She is the author of numerous books on trauma recovery and healing, and many more projects in the works. And Marich is the founder of the Institution for Creative Mindfulness. She is so good, everyone. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Okay. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you again for making this time to speak with me. My great pleasure. So nice to meet you. Yeah. It's really, really nice to meet you and to become acquainted with your work. My husband actually 
was the one who introduced me to your book because he has been practicing jujitsu and I don't know how, how he came across it, but then he knows that I have this focus in, in trauma healing and, and we've been talking about different practices and how to make them trauma sensitive or are they trauma sensitive? And, and he pointed me in this direction and wow, I mean, I, I never would have thought about this. We hear about trauma sensitive yoga a lot (laughs) and meditation, trauma sensitive mindfulness, but this was really new to me. I would love if you could just share a little bit about jujitsu for those who don't know what kind of practice it is and why you found it so healing for trauma. So jujitsu is a practice that is Japanese in origin. It really works with the art of softness and flexibility, which is what the translation kind of boils down to in English. And a lot of people who practice it in the United States, which included the way I was introduced to it, is more through the Brazilian tradition. And the Brazilians, the Gracie family, they were Japanese judo and jiu-jitsu practitioners and then adopted it for more of a Brazilian style. And that's largely what made its way to the United States. And a lot of the association with jiu-jitsu is MMA, mixed martial arts, because it is one of the mixed martial arts that can get used and even a member of the Gracie family, the first family of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, was a founder of the MMA. And I think that's a barrier for a lot of people practicing it who might be interested in exploring martial arts more for self-defense and trauma empowerment. Is That was certainly a barrier for me, this association of, oh, men fighting in cages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interestingly, how I got into jiu-jitsu was my stepsons at the time were practicing it. And my former husband and I thought because the boys were interested in MMA, (laughs) that would be a good way to get them in. And even in writing the book, I found that a lot of women who end up practicing jujitsu are introduced to it through their sons or children or, or partners. And as a trauma specialist, trauma therapist, for a lot of years, I was intrigued by the martial arts for its capacity to help survivors with self defense. Because I remember very clearly working with a client once who said, I think I really need to learn how to physically defend myself to feel okay again out in the world. And I didn't know much about the different martial arts at the time other than, hey, embodiment, cool. If you can find a school where you feel comfortable, great. But then my own journey didn't really begin with jujitsu till 2016, 2017. And I saw through that why this needs to be looked at along with trauma-sensitive yoga and other embodied practices for survivors. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool how some of the things you describe in the book, I think many of the listeners who are familiar with yoga will find familiar. I mean, you're talking about the breathing, you're talking about different postures and working with energy, leaning into people and working in relationship with others. Maybe you can talk about some of the specific aspects of the practice that, that can be healing and why. Right. Well, since I know you have an interest and in, in work in trauma-informed yoga, even the book that I wrote with Anna Perkle is very much structured along the same lines as David Emerson's first book, Overcoming Trauma Through Yoga, uh, Emerson and Hopper, where it, we really wrote a book that was for practitioners, for clinicians who want to refer people in that direction, and for jujitsu instructors themselves. And I think if you're a listener and you have familiarity with trauma-informed yoga, a lot of the same concepts apply in terms of 
looking for a space or a gym or a dojo where people can really feel like they are allowed to modify. Because I'm kind of dancing around a little bit, but I think at its core, jujitsu is the perfect art for self-defense. And that is ultimately what, what makes it great for survivors. Even a simple technique that's taught in jujitsu, like getting up in base. If you're down on the ground, how to use your arms, how to use your physical body to really support you and facilitate you standing up with power is one of the first techniques you use, you learn in jujitsu, whether you're practicing more through a self-defense course in it, or whether you're going to the gym because you do want to learn to roll around on the mats like the MMA fighters do. So uh, getting up in base, being able to, to stand with confidence, very similar to how we'd use mountain pose in yoga is something that is really a core element of, of jiu-jitsu. And the reason why it's often seen as the, the best art for survivors, especially for women, and this is largely working on the assumption that women physically are smaller, but the idea of jiu-jitsu is you do not need brute strength for it to work. It's about body leverage. It's about how you position your body. So for example, one of the first moves you learn in jiu-jitsu is a technique called trap and roll, which is an assailant's on top of you, an attacker's on top of you. If you're a smaller person underneath, how do you get them off? There's some positioning with the hands and feet that are involved, but otherwise you're using a bridge like you would in yoga, lifting the hips up off the mat and then using what's called leverage or alavanca is the Portuguese word to, to move someone off you as opposed to strength. And when I started studying a lot of these principles is where I realized, A, how much similarity there was to yoga, and that there was a lot of messaging here around, gee, when I force something too hard, I might end up digging myself into a bigger hole, so to speak. But if I can learn how to use my body effectively, then I can really tap into a lot of strength that I never knew was there. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, like artfulness of action is what comes to mind. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the big difference would be, I mean, except for something like an acro yoga or, you know, a specific partner's yoga here, you're really working so closely with another person, potentially a stranger, right? Right. And yes, is is the short answer to that. And I think that's where some of the benefit can be. If it's handled properly for survivors who may be very edgy around rolling around with strangers. That being said, and the pandemic really revealed this, there are a lot of solo jujitsu techniques you can practice on your own, especially what I mentioned, getting up in base. You can use the wall to help you with some resistance. So for survivors who are first starting out, there is a way to learn at least some of the base techniques about leverage and getting a good standing base without a partner. Now, my experience was, yes, I was completely overwhelmed by the group setting. Even when I went to a women's self-defense class, and it was mostly women and just a few male instructors, I was completely flooded and triggered, and, and I just didn't like the experience. And then I went to a second class months later with a different instructor. And I found that even with that different instructor, it didn't suck as much being in close proximity with other people. And so I I was privileged and I recognize the privilege here that I was able to afford private lessons with him because I did a series of private lessons with this instructor until I felt more confident. And then I was able to try the group classes. 
And I also lived in a part of the country where there weren't the availability of a lot of women's classes. Like I've trained in California where it's been a class of hundred women. And that was even a different experience for me positively. So you might be in a part of the country where there are more women's based self-defense classes and that may feel less threatening. Yet I know one of the, the moments that was really critical to my healing is when I had worked my way to be able to handle group classes. To be able to train with men who may have ordinarily repulsed me really felt like a big step in my healing, but it Mm. took time to get there. Yeah. I love how you describe that it can be a place where we can explore in a safe way, it kind of exposure to the things that trigger Mm -hmm. us. I think of yoga in the same way. It's like putting ourselves in sometimes an uncomfortable position, um, but on the mat. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100%. And then the, yeah, go ahead. And I think a variable here and what makes that possible is the skillfulness of the instructor Mm -hmm. and the instructor being able to really know trauma responses when they see them and to uh, address accordingly. Because I I take this up with yoga teachers all the time, teaching quite a bit of trauma-informed yoga that if you have a real power yoga style, that's no pain, no gain. That's generally not great for survivors. If you use a lot of physical adjustments, especially without asking, that's not great for survivors. And I think an instructor really does set the tone for a class. And that's a lot of why we wrote this book to target instructors as well. Mm. I, I hope it's been getting out there too. We ha- we've had a lot of great reception. The, the book itself released back in March of 22. So yeah, this is one of the later interviews I've done about it. So it's been it's been fun already to talk about some of these things with you. And yeah, just a lot of, you know, well-known jiu-jitsu instructors have approached us and have connected with it. And one of our folks we interviewed for the book is a friend of mine I used to train with who now owns a school in Erie, Pennsylvania. And he sent me a note the other night that a person came to his gym to check it out because he'd read the book. So mm. we're mm-hmm. we're hopeful. Yes. Yeah. And I know you have another book baby out. We're going to uh, talk about that as well. The book babies, they're a real thing. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they really are. Yeah. I found this just, and I, I continue to find this subject so really interesting um, because I teach yoga teachers to be trauma-informed. And um, lately I've just been taking that training to other organizations, schools, uh-huh. teachers, basically anywhere where there's that teacher student kind of setup relationship or hundred percent corporate, right? We all need these skills. Being trauma informed is for anybody who works with the general public. And yes, I think it takes on an even greater element of importance where there is a student, a coach, an instructor dynamic. Yeah. I would hope to see like anyone in that martial arts space, coaches of sports team, all getting some kind of trauma sensitivity training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what you did with that book is really like pushing that out. So I <laughs> I hope it's getting out there. Some of the things you wrote about jujitsu that really stuck out for me and were so similar to yoga, some of the, the benefits like the safe exposure, some others were around choice. I really like like this. Um, I really equate safety, the uh, feeling of safety. When that's established, we open ourselves up to more choice. We start to see more options. And then from there grows autonomy. 
And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about just how jujitsu opens up more choices. Yeah, there's, because I think safety is something where one of the follies we make as instructors with safety is telling a person, you're in a safe place here. Yeah. We ultimately, as people, as students, as consumers, we're the ones who decide if we're safe in a space or not. And I think autonomy choice is the basis of autonomy. And that's one of the first places it begins to really let students know that you are, Alana use a lot as you're the empowered navigator of your recovery. You decide if you're safe here. You decide if you keep coming back. And I know for me, when I think of my jujitsu journey, it was very much, yes, certain conditions had to be present. Yet it ultimately taught me how to stand up for myself. And I think about the the first instructor I had that was really meaningful for me, Micah Bender, and how in those private sessions is where we were able to do a lot of exploration. And as somebody who had some psychological knowledge himself, he was able to point things out like, you're almost playing too nice with this one technique. And even though a lot of jujitsu is care and concern for your partner, we're not actually fighting, we're not hurting people. It was a striking technique where I was clearly holding something back. And the more that we explored it, it's because as a woman, I was socialized to be nice. And even I know a barrier that I had to practicing jujitsu in those right before I actually went to start taking classes, because my husband at the time and my, my, my sons had thought it would be good for me. And I'm like, I'm just not a violent person. I'm not this, I'm not that. And yeah, there's even a lot of flack we get from feminist circles that I run in that women should not have to take self-defense classes. Mm, Okay, yeah. (laughs) We should teach men not to attack, which I agree with 100%. But I also have a feeling of why not both? Because... I think there's so much to be learned in realizing you can defend yourself, that you can get literally somebody who's trapping you off of you. And that is where we build a lot of those skills of tapping into our own power. I love that. I really want to know those basic skills. I was I was trying to do them in your book. You have really good pictures and explanation of some of the basics. I know it's really a practice that um, yes, it's an action practice. Play. And I, I do think jujitsu is hard to read out of a book, personally, because I know in the book, there are some, Anna and, and her husband modeled some techniques that, that you could try with a partner. But I, you know, I would say to any listener, if you have a concern about going into a class environment, if you have one other trusted other in your life, it can be somebody you can train some of these exercises with. And if reading them out of a book feels clunky, the shout out I like to give is gracieuniversity.com. They're one of the Gracie schools out in California. And even though I had a school to practice at in Ohio, I still took their women empowered curriculum online. And Eve Gracie and, and Henry Gracie and their team take you through all the self-defense moves on a video instruction. And the key is to, to have somebody you trust with you going through the technique. So it could be a partner. It could be a friend. So that would be a recommendation I would give to people who want to do this, but maybe don't want to go to a big jujitsu school yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think baby steps in. That's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering on the other end for instructors of any type, like we were talking about before, folks who are, you know, leading groups, 
what are some of the key things that you would say that they should practice to make spaces safer? We know we cannot promise a completely safe space. Right. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is the language that we use, language of choice, letting people know how they can opt out if they're feeling a little overwhelmed with a certain technique. Uh, obviously things like avoiding name calling, which might sound like a no brainer yet. A lot of jujitsu instructors do come out of a more athletic tradition where that can be used as quote unquote motivation. And in a general space, it's, it's just something that's not warranted. And I think a message I have for yoga teachers is where, you know, you can cross apply to jujitsu teachers, but I really emphasize this to yoga teachers is yes, there are different styles. There are different traditions of yoga. I have some qualms with some of the fitness yoga that gets taught in the United States, kind of being divorced from the heart of yoga. Yet, ultimately, I think all paths can lead us to where we want to go. And that being said, I, I think another thing I'd say to both yoga teachers and jujitsu instructors is assume that at least one or two people walking into any class of yours has significant unresolved trauma. Because if you're looking at conservative statistics and, and statistics you can assume are underreported, something like according to Rain, one in three women have been sexually assaulted. So that's very likely you're going to get a survivor walking into your class. And it's even one in five men according to RAIN statistics, and we can assume those numbers are low. So something that I hear, I've heard yoga teachers say this, and I can imagine jujitsu teachers might say it with, or instructors might say it, knowing that they're dealing with largely a masculine audience, this idea that, well, we don't really have, quote unquote, those kind of people here. Uh, we don't tailor to like a mental health focus with yoga. And that's just rubbish as far as I'm concerned. You have to assume that at least, as I said, one or two people, if not more, walking into your classes have something they're dealing with. So how can you treat them in a way where, yes, this is a practice that is going to challenge you, while also validating that you might be experiencing some difficult stuff in this space? And so you feel like it's mainly around the language that the, the teacher's using, that it's, it's so much based Yes, yeah, so much of trauma-informed care is language. It's realizing the language choices that we make using language of choice and invitation instead of language of command. And, and yes, you may need to slip into language of command to actually instruct a maneuver. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. So language is a primary way. I also think that as, and this applies for both, we, there are some exceptions. Like if we as the instructor are going through an injury, we might not be able to model everything. But being able to physically demonstrate can become very important. Being able to realize the power of your own breath to help co-regulate someone, I think, is super important. Because there have been times when I've been in yoga classes with really good teachers where they can sense that I'm struggling and they just come up to me and breathe in such a way. Yes. <laughs> where I can feel their presence and feel the breath. And I think a lot of that cross applies to jujitsu. I think taking a breath break in a jujitsu class is a great thing because, yeah, I, I thought I knew a lot about breath work as a yoga practitioner. And then I started practicing jujitsu and I realized, gosh, I was still holding my breath a lot. Mm. So I really liked it that my instructor worked breath a lot into 
jujitsu. And even one of our contributors for the book, uh, Marty Dorsey, runs a course called Breathing for BJJ, which I think is fantastic. Can you share anything about that? Well, basically, he he works because he has a brown belt. He's a higher level jujitsu practitioner, and he's a nurse by background. And yeah, he has concerns about a lot of jujitsu practitioners, even especially those who do it for sport, just either holding their breath or not using their breath as effectively as they could. So uh, yeah, if you go online and just Google breathing for BJJ, it's if it's something that intrigues you, it's it's another program you can explore. That's great. Sometimes you know, the breath gets left behind, you know, it's oh, yeah. mentioned in the beginning and then people are like, okay, got that. And it's really that's, something that, that needs. That's a that really constant. good point. Yeah. And that's, and that's more likely to happen, I think in jujitsu, because in yoga, breath is often seen as such a focus of, of what we do. Yeah. There are some jujitsu instructors who really work well with breath. And I would say that to make it more trauma informed or trauma responsive, highlighting that is super important. Mm. What would you recommend if someone, you know, as a teacher does see someone in class either having a flashback or, you know, an anxiety attack or being triggered in some way? Do you have some recommendations for them? Well, I think if we're we're looking at jujitsu, because honestly, a lot of my recommendations for yoga would be similar. It would be kind of going up to them, taking a breath with them, not touching them because I think touch can be more activating. And I like wherever possible to breathe, to make eye contact and ask what you need or to give permission to go outside and get some air, take some water or to just sit out for a while. Because it's important to note that jujitsus and most yoga teachers are not therapists. You're not expected to do full level therapy there. But one of the other things we do in the book that I'm really happy about is for survivors who might be intrigued by jujitsu and want to try it out, but are afraid that something like a flashback might hit them. We, we have a whole chapter on grounding and centering and breath skills that they can do on their own before they go into a jujitsu space. So to know that if an instructor suggests you sit out for a while, those are some skills that you can do. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's pretty important. I remember once I was in a class. And this was not particularly with who I'd consider to be a very trauma responsive instructor, but he handled it well. So this particular school had a policy where you had to wear the full gi, the full uniform, the coat and the the pants. And that was something that was, was a challenge for me. It was a challenge I chose to embrace because I overheat very easily. It felt very stifling. And during one particular class, I I was having a bit of an overheating, panicky episode. It wasn't a full-blown flashback, but the instructor clearly saw that I was kind of done for. And he asked what I need. And I said, can I please do the rest of this class with the coat off? Because I had a rash guard on underneath. And yeah, it was a big deal for me to ask him that I needed that. Yet I was glad that he allowed that and it allowed me to continue with the class. I really appreciate that story because it can be very hard to ask what we for what we need. Of course, yes. In that circumstance, in that moment when there's those norms and those norms mm-hmm. aren't like working for us and it feels really hard. And especially when there's that power differential between the teacher and the student and then there are the other people in the space. 100%. I can really relate to that. I, I It called to mind a time that I was really overheated in a in a yoga class and 
for the first, and I was really feeling like beginnings of an anxiety attack. And for the first time ever, I allowed myself to just walk out and get some air and then return. And it felt like I was breaking all the rules. Right. <laughs> you know, and I had to deal with it. Like, it, it felt like, did I do something wrong? Like it, when, why is that wrong? Right. Exactly. It's, it's an interesting interplay to play with because when I think of that story, I made a decision that I was going to still take the classes where I had to wear the full gi. Wear, wear the full, full uniform because it did feel like a necessary step out of my comfort zone challenge I wanted to address. Obviously, I prefer no gi classes where you could just wear your rash guard or wear whatever you want. And even my private training, we were able to do that quite a bit. So I think there's an element to both yoga and jujitsu where you grow when you work at your edge, when you do challenge yourself. But part of that is knowing you still have to be safe enough at that edge. Because if you are foolish, you'll end up hurting yourself. If you blow past it just to show I can do it. Uh, and I know yoga's given me, and the di- various traditions of yoga I've tried, has given me ample opportunities for that as well. Where can I practice at this place where I'm still challenging myself while also being attuned to what I need? Such a good point. Just working at that edge and figuring out what that is for us each day, because it's kind of a moving target. Mm-hmm. you know, it can change. And what's the edge for me today? You know, if I'm like more sensitive today, if I haven't Mm -hmm. left or whatever reasons, like those could be changing. So not trying to live up to like last week's edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 You talk a little bit about disassociation in this book, but I know that it's a bigger topic in your book that just came out. Do you want to share a little bit about that work? Sure. So dissociation is, I mean, it was a big part of my jujitsu journey, uh, having to work with that. And my newest book is called Dissociation Made Simple. Uh, it's been something I've specialized in as a therapist. And yeah, I, I think all yoga teachers and jujitsu instructors and folks, not in addition to knowing about trauma, need to know about dissociation. So yeah, where do we begin? <laughs> dissociation, wherever trauma is present, you likely have some degree of dissociation. Wherever intense stress can be present, it might not meet a person's definition of trauma, you can have dissociation. And it's basically this tendency we have to sever or to separate when things get uncomfortable. And the way it most showed up for me in jujitsu, and I remember when Micah and I, my coach, had our first private lesson, I basically sat him down and said, I need to tell you about dissociation. Because there will be times where I'm overheated, overwhelmed, and it'll look like I'm not here anymore, like I'm zoning out. And that's just something my brain has done very naturally since I was a child coping with stress and trauma. And honestly, I'm able to kind of do it when I need it and and bring myself back, so to speak, in in short order, because I have tools now now to do that. But I felt it was very important for for Micah to know that if I'm suddenly like here but not here, it's really not because I'm being disrespectful. There's just this sense of overwhelm. So dissociation, I think I've uttered this already, simply means to sever or separate. And it it comes from the Latin root, uh, dissociatio. And what we're severing or separating from is the present moment, when the present moment is overwhelming too much. 
And then there are more kind of extreme examples. And I, I don't even like to use the word extreme, but different examples of dissociation where the severing or separating maybe where a person really kind of displays different parts or aspects of themselves. And even for people who don't have dissociative identities or dissociative identity disorder, we all have different parts or aspects of ourselves. Where when we're under stress, it may feel like one part takes on more of the work than other parts. So dissociation is a lot of different things. And if your listeners are interested in diving in more, I do recommend the new book because I also wrote that for as general as possible an audience for people who may struggle with dissociation themselves, for therapists, for teachers, for family members who want to know more about how they can be supportive of people who really do struggle. But part of that support is recognizing where we all dissociate anyway, and how it is a very normal part of the human experience. Sometimes it's something to worry about. Other times it's not. It's just a coping device. And and why is it, and, and we can skip this part, Jamie, if, if you don't want to talk about this, but why is this controversial to so many people? <laughs> oh, well, where do we begin? No, I, I, I don't mind talking about it at all. So I think what makes it, because there's the whole controversy amongst therapists and psychiatrists about... I think we're getting better at recognizing that, yes, all human beings have some low-grade level of dissociation we have the capacity for. There was a joke at the beginning of the pandemic, a meme that went around that said, some of you lack the dissociative skills to survive the apocalypse, and it shows. Because, yeah, I mean, think of how we all may have leveraged some severing from reality (laughs) during that in, in order to cope. So I think we're getting better recognition that dissociation, we all do it, but the controversy has largely been around dissociative identity disorder, and which was formerly multiple personality disorder, which is a horrible name for it, but it was the name that the field had. And, and there's a lot of psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists who don't even think it's a real thing. They think people with dissociative di- identities are making it up. I do not personally have full-blown dissociative identity disorder, but I do have dissociative identities. The way that dissociation took hold in my brain following traumatic experiences, we do have several distinct parts. We're all aware of each other. We, We don't like at any time, which is a main reason we don't have the full disorder, but we know what it's like to be a person with parts. And even talking like that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because I, I think it's the sense of, but there's something wrong with that. And you should want to be just one cohesive personality. And my feeling is very much like, no, this is just how I've lived since I was a kid. And I actually think it helps me navigate the world. And yes, a lot of my therapy has been around how do I navigate dissociation so it's not causing me problems. But I think that makes a lot of people uncomfortable for it to be normalized. I think wherever trauma is talked about, it makes people uncomfortable. And you can't talk about trauma without talking about dissociation. And what can make trauma uncomfortable for folks is many people haven't worked on their own. And the coping mechanism has been to dissociate from it, to bury it, to, to not go there, to say, well, I'm a survivor, I'm resilient, I've dealt with it, even though it might be seeping out in other ways. And then a lot of the halls of power don't like it when you talk about trauma, because that usually means you're holding someone responsible, whether it, it be. Uh, a military, a government, uh, parents, the church, that usually when people have been traumatized, it's because someone else is responsible for it. And that makes people uncomfortable. 
that was a lot of good stuff right there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, just came, it just comes out now. <laughs> yeah. Feeling a lot of, you know, resonance and truth around that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, when I talk about trauma, it's, it's, I always make sure that we talk about it, not as just this individual situation, but it's, it's most often connected to others, right? So it could be family, it could be society. And there are many different levels of that. And the work is both ways working on ourselves. Like you were saying how some people are against that. Why should I have to work on my self-defense and the both and of working to make society better? Yes. Yeah. Wow, I'm I'm so glad you shared that. I've been seeing the buzz on your social media. I wasn't sure what Aww. it was all about. And that's so interesting. I mean, I would think with like internal family uh, systems therapy or parts mm-hmm. therapy, which I think has gotten more mainstream in the last years, that, that more people would be getting comfortable with the idea of parts. And it has gotten more mainstream. And I actually, I I wrote about this in the book. I speak about this a lot. I think it's been a both and with that. Because yes, on one hand, I have seen parts models like IFS, like you mentioned, really normalize this idea that we all have parts. Great. That's a big part of what I teach, that in order to fully understand dissociation, we really have to get that we all do it. We all have these part structures. My criticism of some folks in the IFS community, of some folks who are really kind of putting out this idea that we all have parts is they do tend to negate or dismiss the experience of people with dissociative identities. Because even this one book that I cite in the new book, it's not an IFS book, but it's it's a similarly kind of vibed, hey, we all have parts. It very much had a tone of, but don't worry, you can still do parts work. And this doesn't mean you're a person with dissociative identities. You're not like those people. And a, and a lot of people with dissociative identities, because I'm pretty active in, in that community of therapists and advocates, we, we feel that a lot of these parts models are sometimes a bit reductionistic. That, well, you have these parts that show up in this way. And a lot of us with dissociative identities are like, but that's not how our system works. And you can't put us in a box. You can't put us in a model is how many of us feel. And if you really want to get to know a person with dissociative identities parts, you have to get to know them and let them teach you about their parts. And I feel that sometimes these parts models can be a little, but this is how it is. (laughs) So, and that's just a problem with therapy in general. Even though models can become very mainstream, they can also box folks in. And that's something that I don't necessarily try to fight against it, but I really want to put out more of a both and that you can learn the education and learn the models, yet you're fundamentally dealing with people. Oh, and it, it adaptations <laughs> will be requ- yeah, adaptations will be required. And I feel the same way about yoga. Yes. That there are so many beautiful yoga traditions with techniques that we can learn, and I think we can honor those while also realizing that we do have to adapt and modify. My, the primary guru I studied with, I'm not really involved with the school anymore, but he used to say, because I would ask him, like, how do you feel about what the West has done with yoga, being a person from India? And he would say, yeah, you know, a, a lot of what gets done in America isn't really yoga to me, but it's fine to keep calling it yoga because people need baby food, is what he would say. People need it delivered to them in ways that are palatable to them. 
And then if it leads them to deeper hearts or deeper depths of the practice, that's great. So I, I think it, that that applies with a lot of healing practices. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that's how I entered yoga from a very superficial space and it went very deep for me. Um, it doesn't happen to everyone, but it it has some things in it that many of us end up there. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's, there must, it, you know, that, that essence is still somewhere, somewhere in there, but wow, that differentiation that you just made. And I know some of the listeners may not be familiar with IFS and we'll have to do a whole nother show on that, <laughs> but that was very clear for me. And that really is really eye opening because it's not the same. And that, that really helped me to understand what's going on. So I thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. And for those who who have some background, I think that they will have that eye-opening moment as well. And you're right. It's really about getting to know, getting to know the person and the people inside of them. And that's different. Each person is different. And each reaction to trauma is different, I always say. And, you know, the body's mind's brilliant way of of handling a very um you know, not normal situation. hundred percent. Yep. You were actually, you were talking about that in your book. It brings to mind that you mentioned a lot of people are talking about trauma is stored in the body. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah. I remember you saying not, not to forget that actually trauma is in the mind. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's stored in the brain in the way that plays out in the body. So that's just a little small distinction that I make because I, do think there's a lot of this, well, th- the body is more important than the mind. And no, we need both. Yeah. So, because yeah, the body definitely does bear the burden. The body does, we have to work with the body because that's where this storage plays out. Yet we we need a, an infusion. We need both. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's important again, to keep going back to that both and, and not get yes. stuck <laughs> in just one model or one idea of the way things are. So I really appreciate that about you, Jamie, and, um, and your work and the way you, you know, you approach what you say keeps us out of, like you said, getting stuck in just one model or one theory um, Mm -hmm. because they're just theories. And in real life, it doesn't exactly play out that way. Right. Yes. You're talking about dissociation. I recently was speaking with someone, not in a in a podcast way. We were on a panel together, and he was talking about depersonalization. I don't know if that's something you're familiar with, it, but it came to my mind. I was wondering, what is that? How is that? The yeah, so different. So depersonalization is one of the dissociative disorders. It's it's a way that dissociative symptoms, which are based in trauma, can manifest and. One of the contributors who I interviewed for the book is a person with depersonalization, and she describes it very much as this perpetual constant feeling that nothing is real, that your body isn't real. She said, I would sit across from my therapist sometimes and wonder, like, are you real or am I imagining this? And I I believe a lot of how it originates is how so many young children escape reality to cope. And it could make it then very difficult to know what is real in the sensory world around you. So something that that particular contributor ended up saying was, but I know nature's real. So whenever I'm struggling with the dynamics of am I real or the people around me real, going to nature always seems to help. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that tip. I've been really embracing 
nature immersion and nature therapy, forest therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for some people, I think nature does it for some people. It's being on my mat and the tapas, the heat that's burned in my body. That's when I know I'm real. Mm. So I think it can, it can vary for everyone. And depersonalization can be part of people who have dissociative identities yet. It can also be an issue in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And this person was speaking in a yoga panel. So it was about how doing a more heating, intense body practice right. was helpful. Yeah. And to that point, I will say, because I know you have a lot of yoga teachers, I can, and I admittedly, I've done it in this interview. I can get a little cynical about power yoga. I can get a little cynical about athletic yoga. Yet I also know that's what a lot of survivors have needed. One of my good friends, Mandy Hinkle, who's a yoga teacher, I do workshops with her. She and I are kind of the opposites where I needed more of a yin practice to savor into my body. She needed more of, of the yang, the action, the power to be able to even feel her body enough so she could quiet her mind. So that's why I do think there are, it's important. We have different styles available to people. Yeah. Exactly. And don't worry, I'm okay with you being cynical about power yoga. <laughs> that is not a problem here. <laughs> I come from a kind of power yoga background and I have moved into very gentle, <laughs> very right. slow uh, yoga. So um, no, no, no problem with that. I'm glad that you are so honest and open and willing to share your feelings on these topics and embrace the controversy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I know that 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 book pretty much just came out, but I wonder, Jamie, what's coming up for you? What's next? Where is your interest going? What's what's well? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm feeling a pull, and I think you know this because you reference some of my social media postings. Uh, I have, and I've been doing this all along. YouTube was mostly the platform that I used, so I have a lot of trauma informed yoga lessons up on YouTube and some interviews, but I've recently crawled into the TikTok space, which I'd held out on for years. And one of my folks who works with me on the book said, a lot of these teachings you do kind of as short forms would be really good as TikTok videos. So if you're a TikToker or Instagram, trauma therapist rants is my handle on both. And I, I, I've liked this because yes, social media has problems. I know uh, that's all well stated and documented and accepted yet. I do think social media has done an amazing job of creating more of a public psychology space where people who may previously not have had a voice can share their ideas or people like me, who is very much an academic misfit, can share ideas more accessibly with people, even more accessibly than my books. So I love to write. I still have a small clinical practice. I still do a lot of training. I I imagine my life is going to continue a lot in that vein, but I'm always open to the next adventure of how my practice and my process will be shared. Well, I'm going to be following you and subscribing to whatever you put out there. I'm a, a fan and I really, really appreciate the way you, the way you share your personal experience and your, your, uh, what you've learned throughout the years. And it's just beautiful. I really, really appreciate your teachings. Um, I wonder if there was anything today that I neglected to ask you. Maybe in our last minutes, I know you also are a fan of EMDR. Maybe uh, more than a fan. I, <laughs> I, yeah, I I train I train EMDR. I've written three books about it. 
okay, yeah. Kind of how I'm mostly known amongst therapists. So what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in the last couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe just in our yeah, in our in our final uh, minutes here. I mean, we have a little bit of time. Maybe you can just share uh, briefly then what is EMDR and why that is uh, such a central practice for you as well. And, well, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and it is considered one of the top empirically validated treatments for trauma and, and PTSD specifically. And it was founded by a California psychologist in, 19, in the late 1980s who did have a mindfulness practice and a meditation practice. And because of her cancer journey, she was extremely interested in mind-body medicine. And she had this discovery about the way moving your eyes in a certain way could help the reprocessing of memories more effectively without words. And from there, she developed a, a pretty sophisticated method. And I mean, I got involved in EMDR in 2004 as a client. I had a lot of my own recovery and healing at that point, but something was still very stuck. And so I was referred to an EMDR therapist who was wonderful. And she ended up working with my dissociative disorder and she was also the one who really fully brought yoga and meditation into my life too. So I think EMDR is, is one of many practices that I do that works with this idea that it has to be the body, mind, and the spirit. If, if you have the willingness to work with that element, that we have to work with all of them together. And so it is really good holistic treatment. There's a lot of science behind it, though, if that's something you need to feel engaged with it. And for any therapists listening, I am an EMDR trainer. I do the basic trainings. I do a lot of advanced topics, including a, a course on yoga and EMDR. So yeah, it's it's another big part of my offering. Yeah. And uh, another avenue that I think, yeah, people are maybe a little bit like skeptical about or confused about. Somehow it's it's in and out of the public consciousness, I think. Well, I will say if, if you're really wanting to know what it is, if you go to my YouTube channel, which is just search my name, Jamie Marich EMDR, I do a lot of demonstrations right on YouTube of EMDR, including one that has close to a million views. That would probably be the first one that comes up. And yeah, give it a watch because it's, it's very hard to kind of know what it is until you've either experienced it or have seen it in action. Awesome. We will check you out on YouTube and Maybe I'll get you back on or you'll recommend someone that we should have come on to talk more in depth about EMDR because I know- I we... actually do have a recommendation that oh, I want to okay. tell you. Awesome. Yep. Do you want to share it right now? You can. Well, yeah. My my good friend, Rotem Breyer, who's, who's based in Denver, he has a book coming out later this year called The Art and Science of EMDR. I wrote the foreword for it. And yeah, I know he he just has a really nice way of interfacing with the general public about EMDR. So I'll make sure I hook you two up. Oh my gosh, I love this. Great. And we give him a, a shout out. Well, I would love to have him on the podcast. That's awesome. <laughs> is there anything else, Jamie, that I didn't ask you today that you feel is important for the audience to hear? No, I just want to thank you. This was a wonderful interview that touched on a lot of the different basis of my interest. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. This is a great interview. And I know that our listeners are going to get so much from um, getting in contact with your work. Thank you. Thank you. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. 
As we buzz around the busy world We will appear in other people's photographs As we speed through the centuries We will collide and the light will bend We will be accidentally immortalized In someone else's land